Hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to the new BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Giffens-Davidson. Thank you, our listeners, for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are joined by Brian Ellison, who is a native Detroiter, pastor of Church of the New Covenant Baptist of Detroit, and attorney here in the city. He also happens to be the brother of the Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, who successfully prosecuted Derek Chauvin and the police murder of George Floyd. Donna and I will be doing a full show of Fresh Off the Press. So because there's just a lot to talk about, but first, Brian, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Well, thank you for having me. Um, hello, Donna. Hello, and it's a great day. And, and I'm glad to be here. And I, I hope I can contribute to uh, this great program. Mm -hmm. So I always claimed Ellison boys because we grew up together um, <laughs> as kids. There were five of them and four of us. And our dads um, were, were very close. They went to medical school together at the University of Michigan. And so we wow. grew up together um, and, and, you know, um, fighting, brawling. We went to elementary school together. So many of my Memories Donna, are used Ellison to boys. You used to uh, fight, Donna. You used to be fighting and brawling. Get out of here. Um, no, I mean, you know, we did. We used to, we were time girls. So we used to, <laughs> we used to get into it. Okay, so they would come over. It was Ellison's and the Givens girls. And they would come over and we would sit at one side of the room and they would sit on another side and we just talk about each other. And then we would <laughs> be playing. And one thing stands out. We were little and I can't know. I, I was, had to be like eight or nine. Brian went home with a broken finger and nobody knew how his finger got broken. And so uh, everybody blamed me. Um, Brian, did he break your finger? You know what? I don't recall. I remember the broken finger, but I don't remember the details of how I broke it, but I'm sure Donna had something to do with it. <laughs> 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 and, and, and you know so no we, we weren't really fighting fighting we were just talking stuff about each other they teased me and so um you know you grow up with people like we did the Allison boys and the Givens girls you grow up with them and they're just these brothers they're these kids and mm -hmm. um but I, I will say this and I think Brian will back me up from the mm -hmm. time Keith was always the most intense Ellison brother is that true Brian I would have to say yes. Yes. He always had an intensity about him, okay? Yes. yes. He was you did, you did not want to um cross him. Mm. Um and and so we're the same age and so having Brian who's just a year older than Keith and they're really born really close together. How, your, your birthdays are just days apart, aren't they? Here's the funny thing about that. His birthday is August 4th, 1963. And my birthday is August 29th, 1962. So from the 4th to the 28th, we're the same age. And, you know, we basically, um, we're, we're, we are uh, Irish twins. Is that what it's called? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 We're very close in age. Shared the bedroom together. 
uh, dated the same girl once upon a time. Stop. Started, at the same time? Not at the same time. Oh. No, no, but the same one. The same one. I'm not going to name My her name. Friend. My right, friend. Right, right, right. My good right. friend, okay? Y'all didn't right. have bro code back then? I mean, we, what hey, Excuse me, Dr. Bailey. She was pretty. So, <laughs> so you know, you can make exceptions sometimes. <laughs> Oh. oh my goodness. I forgot I about that. To hear more uh, <laughs> anecdotes from uh, you and Donna's childhood growing up. Uh, and I know today, Brian, you must be especially proud. We are recording this podcast on 420. So happy 420 to all of the uh, marijuana enthusiasts uh, who was who are celebrating today, and you know there is an additional reason to celebrate as the verdict just came down in the Derek Chauvin trial that he was found guilty on all counts that he was being tried for a case by which your brother uh, Brian successfully prosecuted as the Minnesota uh, Attorney General. So uh, how you feeling? How's it going? How's the family? Um. My phone has been on fire since the verdict came in and it's, it's exhilarating. And as Donna already mentioned earlier, you know, my mom passed about a year ago, yeah. um, very unexpectedly. And she was Keith's biggest fan. And Keith is the man he is today to a large, to a large extent because of my mother. And she allowed that intellectual freedom in the household. In fact, she encouraged it. And Keith, um, man, I, I'm, I'm looking at his body language. I'm, I'm listening to him talk. I spoke to him, I wanna say Sunday morning, right before church, and he was very confident. And um, the family is just, honestly, we're thrilled. We are very happy. Listen, you got four lawyers in the family and we're all commenting and following the proceedings and and it's 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 tremendous it's stupendous i i words almost fail me we're very happy i i have to say i i know that the family is proud and i know that the family is happy but i think that uh donna detroit has reason to celebrate as you know keith being the minnesota attorney general but all but first being uh, not only the son of Clyda Ellison, but a son of Detroit, um, a graduate of Wayne State, you're in a, in a graduate of UAD, and your your neighborhood pal growing up, Detroit has reason to be happy today. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that we do have reason to be um, happy. And Keith, um, uh, for, first of all, you know, everybody we grew up with is happy. But Keith attended um, Wayne State University, and I believe he was editor of the um, the student newsletter. Um, is it the South End or South? He was else? a writer. He was a writer. Okay, he was a. He was a writer for the South End. He yeah. was a writer for the South End. Um, he was very active in an activist community there. Moved to Minnesota for law school and became active in fighting um, and in defending people against um, you know unjust accusations um, and in in police cases. So he has a long resume of activism. It's not new to him. It is who he is. Um, when he was at um, the Wayne State University, he converted to Islam. Speaking of intellectual freedom, so the late, beautiful, wonderful Clyda Ellison was a devout Catholic her entire life. 
a member of the Jesu Church Parish her entire life. One son became converted to Islam and had full faith and love and support from his mother. And the other son became a Baptist minister <laughs> and everybody all got along, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the thread that ran through this all was this commitment to justice and this commitment to a certain value set that transcended religious labels, right? Yes. So as Keith practices Islam, it sounds a whole lot like Brian's Baptist church um, theology, which sounds a whole lot like what we used to hear in the back of the station wagon when um, their mother would drive us to and from school. So I think that really, um, it really speaks to these values and belief systems and the free range to express them and practice them according to your own conscience. But um, would you say that's an accurate reflection of who Keith is in your childhood, Brian? Yes. Can I tell a story? Mm -hmm. Real quick. So Keith just got sworn in as a congressman from the 5th District of Minnesota. And I get a phone call. How they got my phone number, I have no idea. And so uh, this guy from Germany, from Frankfurt, Germany, who worked for their equivalent to our national public radio, calls me and says, I really want to do an interview with you and talk to you about growing up in your home, you as a Baptist pastor, Keith as a Muslim. I said, well, yeah, well, come on. So he comes to my law office. He I've been to Frankfurt, Germany. It's easily a nine hour flight. So he comes there, he has all of his fancy equipment. He puts it all together and he sits down and he starts to interview me. And he wants to know about the conflict between Keith and I. And I said to him, I said, hey man, if you came all the way over here from, to, from Frankfurt, Germany to Southfield, Michigan to hear about how we didn't get along, I hate to disappoint you. We got along just fine. And he tried again to, to find some, I said, it's not there. It's not there. We argued about girls and, and weed more than we argued about religion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he got up. He was out of there in 10 minutes. He was out of there in 10 minutes. So maybe he had relatives in Michigan. I don't know, but he got out of my law office real quick. Let me say something that uh, Donna said earlier. I'll respond to it. So um, I personally, I'm a graduate of Virginia Union University School of Theology, and I feel that um, I'm bathed and baptized in the best of liberation theology. That is my thing. I breathe it in. And Keith does as well from, um, from, from a Muslim perspective, but it's just, you look at the same thing. He just has different labels. But in our household, um, Donna's 100% correct. Uh, the issue, and we didn't have the, the, the nomenclature 40 years ago right, uh, 45 years ago now. But yes, uh, we grew up in a home where justice, uh, righteousness, the civil rights movement, um, the, these are issues we live with each and every day. So for Keith to be who Keith is today, I'm gonna be honest with you, it was highly foreseeable, all right? He, and, and I'm gonna say all of my brothers, um, 
have a sense of uh, righteous indignation. And Keith is just probably the most vocal, okay? But um, it's all there. It's all there. All of the us. Most it was intense, in the household. For sure. Now, I'm not going to say it was obvious to everybody. Yes. And I'm just going to say that, that you know, growing up with Keith, I don't think it was obvious to everybody that he was going to be the attorney general, um, you know, of Minnesota. Keith had a certain level of cool, a certain swagger about him when he was younger that, you know, people kind of didn't really see the intellectual side of him unless you knew him well. And so I think that that intellectual side is one that surprised some people who were only exposed to his swagger, because let's just say he did have his way with girls. I'm going to leave it there. But, 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 you know, he had his way. He was cool. And you just didn't see that. And so I think that, you know, for, for the people who are close to him, it's not a surprise. For people who aren't close to him, it is a surprise. All of the Ellison men are extremely successful men. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the intellectual, um, the, the richness of the intellectual thought. And quite frankly, when our families got together, then the whole thing was super intellectual. So, you know, if I walk into Brian's church and I have been a more regular member of the church than recently, but when I walk in, there's nothing he preaches that I don't agree with. It's like going home again, because somehow the values and the, the, the preaching and the sermons all relate so directly to my belief system. And so I think there's something about how we were raised. And um, so those of us who grew up close to Keith feel a special kinship. Detroit should feel a kinship. I think all black people in America feel a kinship to what happened. And actually anybody standing with justice has to feel connected to this because it is Detroit. It is Wayne State. It is, you know, the, the, these, these, these families that were all connected and doing some things. So now as we move forward, the question is, does it end here? Even as we are dealing with this case, there's another case on the horizon. Keith spoke to that today. You know, unfortunately, Minneapolis is such a progressive place. It is a beautiful place. And it is also, you know, in the Twin Cities area, it's also a place that is very racist. The policing is very racist. You know, when I went to Minneapolis a couple of years ago, there are encampments of um, Native, oh, you were with me, Orlando, and we drove by those Native American encampments and saw all of the people who were just living on the streets in this tent city protesting the exclusion of Native Americans. Now, how can you have this huge Native American encampment in one of the most progressive cities in the nation? Likewise, how can you have this significant occurrence of repeated police violence and killings in one of the most progressive places in America. And Orlando, you remember when we were looking for the black people and we were in the car, we were driving around, we were like, let's find out where the black people live. Because we were trying to navigate our way and it's like, all the housing looks really nice. And we finally stopped, I think at a store somewhere. And we said, where do you find the black? We saw a black person. We said, we where are the black people? people? We were so happy. We were like over that bridge. We drove over that bridge and there they were. We were at home, okay? That's Minneapolis. And so I think that the work is not done. And so all of these accolades, everything that's happening here, it's really not the prosecution of this one case. It is the structuring of that prosecution that I think that matters. You didn't see errors here that you normally see in cases like this. You didn't have a lot of reversible anything. The closest they could come is they didn't like something Maxine Waters said. 
And when the closest you can come to saying that there's something wrong here is somebody who has no real connection to the city speaking out and saying something you didn't like, that speaks to the um, integrity of the prosecution. I, I would like to add, if I may. Sure. Um, so when you get a, a legal case, the first thing you're doing is you, you take the law and you take the facts. You can't, you're not going to debate the law. The law is coded, is statute, but you, you can debate the facts. And you're, the lawyers are as, now these are all excellent lawyers. Even the defense attorney was, in my opinion, outstanding. Um, but the, the problem was that the defense simply didn't have the facts. And when they said, um, your eyes, believe your eyes, that was the end of it right there. That was the end of the case right there. Just believe your eyes. Just believe what you saw. And I, I, I almost can predict what was going on in that jury room when they were deliberating. They, they said, look, we're going to believe our eyes. And this man took his entire body weight upon this man's neck and kept his weight there, kept his knee on this man's neck for three minutes after he stopped breathing. How's that, how's that possible? It is completely inhumane and folks treat dogs better than they treated that man lying in the street with his, with the, with the cop's foot on his neck. I think that, you know, in anticipation of this verdict being read, I think all of America, especially black America was waiting uh, with, with bated breath, uh, really just uncertain on many terms, trying to tell our bodies to, you know, trying to tell our minds, it's in our minds, the signal and the message that, hey, this is a pretty fast turnaround. It's probably going to come out guilty, but our bodies not really getting that message and the, the angst and the anxiety we feel watching a man on trial for a murder that everybody, everybody saw, that everybody. everybody saw, and we still had to watch and endure uh, a, def a, a pretty reprehensible defense uh, uh, attempt uh, was again, you know, traumatizing all over again. And the fact that there was even a possibility because history has taught us that cops get away with this kind of thing, that uh, the verdict would have come back uh, not guilty. We, we were all on edge. And I think that says a lot about the state of our country. Your brother even said he wouldn't call today's verdict justice, however, because justice implies true restoration, but it is accountability, which is the first step toward justice. People are already talking about healing. People are already talking about moving forward. And I got to quote Attorney General Keith Ellison saying, this is just the first step. Yeah. And he, he did such a beautiful, masterful job of referring to, um, to Kenneth Clark and yes, um, the psychologist and, and his wife and, and, and who went back and 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 um looked at all of the um, race riots all of the atrocities on black people from the early 20th century through 1965 and pointed out as 2021 and we're still dealing with it and we've got to fight it and then he left with aspirational notes about the fact that we have 
overcome things that we didn't think we could overcome. Just because you've always had a problem doesn't mean that you always will. And so I think that the cynicism that says it's always going to be this way stops us from fighting hard. I do want to point out, though, that, you know, there are other cases that seem so airtight. It seemed impossible to lose a case that was so airtight. But you had half-hearted attorney generals or prosecutors doing the job and leaving out important facts. So you're right, you can't argue with facts, but when people don't really highlight the right facts or when the wrong things are allowed into the trial, and I'm not an attorney, I'm just an amateur. I think I'm an attorney sometimes. You are a um, professor at Columbia. You can be anything you want to be. <laughs> but you know, seriously, what, what you really have is an attorney general who is using the power of his office and is trusted by the governor and other um, county attorneys to do the job of actually doing the right thing. And I want to point out prior to George Floyd even being killed, um, there was a commission on reforming police that was um, that he was helping to head up in Minnesota, I believe with the state police, because the way Minnesota law is written, the attorney general is not automatically the attorney over this kind of case. He has to be asked to serve in this case, but he was asked to serve in this case. He had been engaging in efforts to do some police reforms, and I'm hoping that they push it further with the understanding that this is, as you pointed out, not the end. It's one case. Now we have another. We haven't even had a chance state. to mourn this one um, in the same state where a woman couldn't tell the difference between a taser, the head of the police union could not tell the difference between a taser and a handgun. So we've got to figure out whether or not that kind of thing is plausible and allowable. And maybe, hopefully, Minnesota will pave the way for other um, places in America to look and say, you know what, we can actually fight this and change it. But I have to say, going to my what's in the news article, if I can uh, make that transition right now. Will you allow me to do that, Orlando? I know that's press not how the press. Go ahead, Donna. <laughs> but I want to connect it. Um, um, that Michigan hasn't passed any police reform since George Floyd's death. So here we are in the city of Detroit, Keith's home plate, hometown, celebrating what happened in Minnesota. But we haven't figured out how to outlaw chokeholds in, in Michigan. We haven't figured out how to require police officers to step in and into an unlawful situation in Michigan. We haven't figured out even how to mandate training, how to mandate scrutiny, how to mandate certain things that gives the public confidence that they're safe. In the state with the blackest city in the United States of America, we haven't figured out how to do this here. And there are some people who will say that um, police brutality doesn't happen in Detroit. That's certainly what Lawrence Garcia, the city's attorney is saying and you know, certainly the argument that you hear certain people make that Chief Craig is doing a bang up job. But there have been many police killings in Detroit since the George Floyd murder. And not all of those killings have been thoroughly investigated or subject, subject to public scrutiny. We don't have body cam footage. And I'm not saying I believe the key police are responsible for any misconduct because I just don't know. I just believe that we have not really engaged in the kind of reform that we need to in our hometown. And it's embarrassing to me that we have not done that yet. Um, when I believe there are 140 laws that have been passed in states across the nation, we have not passed one. What are your thoughts on that? 
I, I, first, I want to give uh, thanks to Jonathan Oosting and Sergio Martinez Beltran for writing this article for British Detroit. Michigan hasn't passed any police reform since George Floyd. What they are highlighting is a deadlock within the Michigan legislature in both chambers for them not to agree on anything, such as banning chokeholds, officers intervening when other officers are unlawful or uh, showing unlawful force or even uh, banning no-knock warrants. What we were able to do though in the city of Detroit was uh, ban chokeholds and require officers to intervene when a colleague uses excessive force among other things. So the, the Board of Police Commissioners passed that in August of last year, but statewide we have not seen any movement on this. And I think that it is very telling where we are as a state. And I also think that um, the, the legislators within the Michigan legislature are, <laughs> are behind the times. And there are many reasons why Detroit, the Detroit delegation within the legislature seems to be outvoted is because Detroit has the biggest and largest voting block in the state of Michigan is underrepresented in the Michigan legislature because of gerrymandering. So the voice that we should have and the power and sway that we should have is not there because of Republican led gerrymandering. What I will say is that uh, police reform uh, at the state level and even at the city level, when we look at the mayor's budget proposal and the amount of money uh, that has been added to the police budget after numerous calls and conversations around defunding the police in certain areas, and there's more money in the police budget going in this year than there was last year. There's there. What, how arrogant do you have to be in the blackest city in America to ignore, to completely ignore calls and conversations for police reform in our city, for looking at other ways to invest in this, you know, wraparound services and social services for our young people and for our most vulnerable populations from that police budget? And, and, and it's ignored. The conversation was moot. Um, so that's disappointing. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Quickly, with the police commission's rules, what is what is the accountability if somebody engages in a chokehold or somebody doesn't intervene? That is unclear. I don't so know that. With that, you can have, it's, if it's not a law, if it's simply a rule, I'm concerned about that. Is that a write up in a personnel file? Um, what are the consequences, Brian? You were going to say something. Well. I was going to say that it's going to be very interesting to see the ripple effects from the verdict from today. In New York, we have, um, I think her name is uh, Carriol Horn, the police officer from uh, 2008 who, who interfered with a, uh, a fellow cop uh, yeah. who was yeah. utilizing yeah. a... a, a citizen and she they ended up in a fist fight and uh she just got um her full pension reinstated um i i see movement i see movement i'm i personally i feel a little optimism uh i think the ripple ripple effects from today and and other events um i think they're going to be positive that's that's how i see it 
I, I believe they will. I'm not certain they're going to be positive here. I don't believe that there is a constituency for change that you see in other communities, or at the very least, it's divided. And so I'll be really interested. You know, Chief J James Craig seems to exercise a lot of influence. He is clearly um, not a proponent of policing reforms, and he seems to have a lot of support on the police commission and in the community. So we'll have to see on whether or not there's reforms because you know we have a mayor yeah. who could help break that deadlock and go to Lansing and say here's why we need some reforms. Yeah. We have other people who could do that. Um, you're not going to do it because the people who are politically connected in the city of Detroit, um, most of them don't really want to see a lot of changes happening with policing and they're still very traditional views of policing in the, the Detroit area I believe among the powers that be so. and and also just add to that uh michigan's a, michigan looks a lot like minnesota as far as his population um my brother won he's the first non-white person to win statewide election in minnesota and if you look at the map of minnesota he only won about four counties hennepin ramsey Duluth and maybe one more. And I think that in Michigan, you got this stronghold out on the west side of the state um, and they, they jam a lot of stuff up. So yeah, maybe we're gonna have to have some type of uh, strong grassroots movement, including our people on the west side. All right, get uh, Grand Rapids involved, okay? And, and surely we'll see something then. Yep. <laughs> Fresh off the press, Rashida Tlaib to Detroit Police Chief James Craig. I'm not going anywhere. Alan Lingle is reporting for Deadline Detroit uh, in the wake of the Dante Wright murder uh, that Donna just referenced a little bit earlier with the police officer, a 25, over 25 year veteran of the police force uh, in Brooklyn town, uh, Minnesota, uh, mistakenly, uh, allegedly mistakenly mistook her uh, taser, mistook her gun for a taser and killed a uh, 20-year-old um, Dante Wright. It's also on video. And a uh, congresswoman for the 13th District here in Michigan took to Twitter to uh, express her disdain for that situation and many other police-involved killings and shootings that disproportionately kill and injure Black and brown bodies and called for uh, again, uh, you know, defunding the police. And actually, I think she used the words abolish policing as, you know, its current structure. And uh, Congresswoman received pushback from even um, progressives in her own party, like uh, Bernie Sanders, and of course, uh, the President of the United States, and um, Detroit Police Chief James Craig. And, you know, it seems as if uh, Chief Craig uh, and uh, Congresswoman Tlaib sort of trade words, uh, you know, every now and then. This time, though, uh, James Craig went on Fox 2 News and called for her resignation, stating that he'll throw her a party if she resigns, stating that her comments uh, were reckless and dangerous and, uh, you know, more comments to that effect. And Rashida Tlaib released an email to, uh, today or late last night stating that 
she's not going anywhere and that she will not be residing, resigning. So we have this war of words between uh, a, Congress, a sitting congresswoman and a, a local police chief. Donna, you've been around longer than I have. Help me understand or help me remember if I don't remember. Has a police chief ever called for a resignation of a sitting U.S. congressperson um, in our city and state? Have we ever had a police chief like Hollywood, James Craig? Um, <laughs> has a police chief ever been deputy mayor? Has a police chief ever escorted a Detroit police commissioner out of a meeting for misconduct? There are so many firsts when this police chief. Has a police chief in Detroit ever sided with Republican governors and become a darling of the right? In our lifetimes, in my lifetime, I can't remember doing, I can't remember, think of any police chief in my living memory who's done that. And, um, but he has, and I think, um, there are others, there are many who, who I saw on social media agreeing with him and saying, you know, she needs to be quiet. Um, I saw more people trying to silence Rashida Tlaib and Maxine Waters than anybody on the Trump side. So I think um, she has a, an unpopular opinion about policing. Um, I think I was talking to somebody and they said, you know, the bad apples the bad police officers make it hard for the good police officers to do their job. As if, you know, one or two bad apples spoils a whole bunch. As if police unions are not donating to the fund for Kyle Rittenhouse. As if police unions are not friends of the NRA. As if policing culture is not what's at, what the problem. And we can talk about reforming, 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 but I want to know how you reform a broken, sick, racist culture where police officers will say things like this. If I rat out another police officer, then they won't come to my aid if I'm at risk doing my job. Rat out. So you have rats and these are people we pay. And we know that the thin blue line exists and they work hard to maintain that line. But we have decided that we would prefer to deal with police criminality and a culture that's so sick that people, these police officers were sending and go funding me and sending messages to Kyle Rittenhouse saying, you go, we all agree with you. What you did was okay. It's hard for me to take any of this um, seriously. I think we, we're, we've, we're brainwashed from the time we're little kids to believe police officers are the good guys. They protect us, they have our backs, they're good. But, Until you're about 13 and a black male and become a threat and you have to have that conversation with your parents when you start driving and you get your driver's license, it, 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 immediately, it immediately shifts. How many times have you been stopped by the police, Orlando? Too many to count. What about you, Brian? To be very candid, maybe a handful of times in my life. Too many to count. When no, I Well, no, no, not too many for me, though. Oh, yeah, I mean, me, yeah, yeah. for you. Yeah, I'm saying for me, my parents bought me uh, a, a sporty car when I was 19 years old and I came home from the summer and, you know, driving in the neighborhood adjacent to Gross Point. I can't even begin to tell you how many times Gross Point police 
uh, but Grosse Pointe Park police pulled me over asking, it was my vehicle, my vehicle, and how did I get it and who bought it and all of that. I mean, from the time I was, you know, 19, 18 years old. Um, and so it's, it's a conversation that we, we got to have with our children, but it's also uh, something that worries me when my younger cousins and nieces and nephews come of age and they start driving. It's like, I don't, I, I don't want them to drive. Like we're literally, we're literally afraid of what could happen. We are afraid of what could happen. And we, it's, that's, that's crazy. There is, there's a real palpable fear there, Donna. You've, you've met, you've met Kevin, both of you, right? Yeah. You know, Kevin, that threatening guy who people look at pictures of me and him on Facebook and says, oh, you can just tell he's a good person by looking at him on Facebook. I'm going to tell you a true story. My birthday last year, we went to Joe Muir's and we're sitting there and there's a musician. And he just keeps looking and looking and looking and looking and looking. And so at his break, I'm sorry, my phone is now um, ringing off the hook. At his break, um, he um, comes over to our table and he looks at Kevin and he says, you know, you look so much like my cousin. I just couldn't stop looking at you. But you know, you're, you're such a good man. I can just tell by looking at you. You've got God inside of you. My cousin doesn't. And he walks away, okay? It's my birthday. What about God inside of me? I got God inside of me too. I'm like, what is wrong here? It's my birthday. Talk about me, right? No, I'm just joking. But this is who he is. And yet he tells me he's been stopped by the police. The reason he would get like driving a truck and he drove an Explorer because police officers would think he was a police officer when he was an Explorer and he did not get stopped as often. So um, fast forward to a couple of years ago, he was moving me in, we were moving in together and he was on his way to pick me up from where I was living. And it was a Detroit police officer who pulled him over because his license plate had expired one day ago, okay? And he was going five miles over the speed limit. Let me tell you how fast he was going. He was going 35 miles per hour in a 30 mile per hour zone. And this police officer, a black man pulled him over and talked to him like he was a piece of whatever. Told him off, couldn't stop telling him, you just drove right by me like you didn't even see me sitting here. Went flying by me 35 miles an hour. And you knew your plates were expired one day, right? And he's trying to move me. So I'm on the phone with him while this is happening. So his license, it, his, his insurance information was on his phone. And the police officer took his phone into his car. And the way they were talking about Kevin had me so scared that he was on Mac and I was on Waveney on Harvard. And I came running down the street because I was afraid of what might happen from this man driving five miles over the speed limit. He thought it was a 35 mile hour zone. Who wouldn't, right? Um, for, for, um, with a, a license plate that was expired by one day. So when I tell you that, you know, for some black men who fit a certain profile, we're good, like, good people, Right. People who other people can look at and see humanity. Other people look at him and see somebody who shouldn't be here, perhaps should not exist. 
So when I look at the people who are profiled and treated that way, I understand everybody doesn't get treated that way, right? I'm a black woman, I don't get treated the same way. Perhaps because of my physical characteristics, I don't get treated that way. But it doesn't mean that other people don't. And we've gotta be that conscious of people to understand some people can't drive down the street without people looking at them as being suspicious. And I was having this conversation with my daughter and about, you know, this thing. And she said, you know, if you drive an old car, if you drive an older model car, people look at you as being suspicious when you drive through certain neighborhoods because you're driving a car that makes you look poor. I had to think about that, about the, the driving while black and having a certain look or having a certain type of car or being a certain age, that's the world we're in right now. And when police get to make those types of judgments based on snap characteristics, not based on the internal characteristic, George Floyd may have been an opioid addict, but from what everybody said, he was a beautiful person who had a sickness, a beautiful person all through it all. Nobody had anything bad to say about this man. And what that police officer saw was trash. Somebody who had to be dominated, controlled, all of that. And so yes. yes, for me, that's where I say police culture allows for that. And it's not just white police officers. This was a black police officer, codenamed Ruckus, who did that. I want to uh, qualify. I, I would like to say, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to go ahead and read uh, the Congresswoman's tweet just so that everybody knows what it said. This is in the wake of the Dante, uh, the Dante uh, Wright shooting. It wasn't an accident, she says. Policing in our country is inherently and intentionally racist. Dante Wright was met, with, was met with aggression and violence. I am done with those who condone government-funded murder. No more policing, incarceration, and militarization. It can't be reformed. Those were her words. So, so she not right say abolish the police. Go ahead, Brian. So a lot of stuff can get lost if you just focus on rhetoric, all right? Not that words don't mean something, they do, I got that. But what I take from that is that uh, Congresswoman Tlaib, who has been a friend to Church of the New Covenant for many years, okay, we love her there. Uh, but she's saying, you don't have to bring a gun into every situation, sometime there are, many, there are many ways to diffuse a situation and handle a situation. Now, the situation that Donna was talking about with Kevin, um, I'm sure that's replicated countless times in, in Black communities uh, or where you're not supposed to be, according to somebody. Um, and, and, and policing is, is yeah, uh, inherently racist. I agree with her. But let's focus on what kind of policy um, uh, reformation can we bring to bear? You don't have to bring a gun into every situation. You don't. There, be creative. Let's try to be creative with how we allocate our money for uh, uh, policing. When you bring a gun, you change everything. Now, I have to be extremely docile because you may have some uh, paranoid episode right? Or um, there's not going to be any kind of mutual exchange with the gun in here. I think that's, I think that was, is what Congresswoman's trying to say. Let's, let's be creative. Let's reimagine policing. I'm all for it. Let's reimagine public safety, right? 
because let's reimagine public safety because your nephew i believe sits on the city council in minneapolis where that's exactly what they said is that we want to deconstruct or whatever it is the police force and, and deliver public safety safety differently there's a picture of my nephew jeremiah ellison who's on the city council in minneapolis and the reason he got into politics is when uh uh, the Philando Castile murder took place. Um, he was part of a protest, a peaceful protest. And there's this photograph. You could probably go online and find it real easily. And there, my, my nephew is there with his, with his dreadlocks and he has his hands up in the air. And there's a cop, the barrel of that gun, that wasn't just a normal barrel. That thing was, was, was very large, had a, had a rifle in his face. And I think that just really angered a lot of people. And now, you know, he is now, the, the police now work for him in theory, you know? So yeah, that that needs to stop. That just needs to stop. You know, it, it, does, it does need to stop. And I'm all for, you know, a reimagining of, of how we do public safety and police in this country. I don't think we can reform something that's sick at the root. We gotta uproot it and think about it in an entirely new and different way. Simply because, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is the city of Minneapolis, the the government shut down and canceled evening festivities after school programs shut down. I mean, the city was not functioning as a normal city in anticipation of predicted black rage. You had over 300 some odd national guard troops brought into the city, barricaded up certain areas and things of that sort. We had more security and eyes on Minneapolis than we did on January the 6th when there was a coup to overthrow the government. But because the people who were marching in DC and tried to overthrow the government looked different from you, looked different from me, looked different from Donna, there was this great anticipation and preparation to over-police with force Black folk who wanted, who would have demonstrated their First Amendment rights to protest. It is sick and it is asinine. And I don't care how you language it. I used to, talk, Donna and I used to talk about this all the time when the language for defund the police came out. And I'm like, well, I understand what they're saying, but it, it's too much to get through, to get somebody to understand. I don't care how you un, how you change it. I don't care what the language is. This, there needs to be a fundamental shift. There needs to be an uprooting and a reimagining of this structure in American society, period, period. I cannot believe the, the, the amount of uh, militarization preparation for citizen uprising that could have happened that, but didn't in response to this to this verdict um it it is it is really it really is mind-blowing what is the purpose of policing in so many instances yes i mean it's to solve crimes how many crimes actually get solved um had my house broken into a couple of times. Nobody even pretended to try to solve those crimes. Don't do, no, don't don't drive around with tainted windows. <laughs> oh, guy, if you got but, um, but, tainted but windows, to what extent is you know the existence of policing as it currently exists to dominate and control certain people, to keep them in their place physically, to keep them in their place socially, 
so that you remove the threat of the whatever it is. I mean, I think that police exist and, and function in a way that is very much to suppress behavior and actions of, of, of certain types of people. And we police a lot of things in our culture. So we've got to rethink what public safety looks like. When you treat me a certain kind of way, to what extent do you draw out a negative reaction from me? When you partner with me, to what extent do you draw something different from me? We've added more police in schools and we've created this policing society where this is how we've chosen to treat certain people in our society. And it doesn't tend to make significant changes in preventing crime, in preventing murders, in preventing you know, anything, um, preventing rapes. What it does is it says we're going to have a reaction and that reaction may or may not be proportional to whatever it is that's done. I have a reaction to you having this counterfeit $20 bill. I could have just taken it from you, right? <laughs> and that would have solved the problem. You don't get to use it, I'm gonna take it out of circulation. But instead the police come and they react in such a way to not just take the $20 bill or accuse him of a crime, but to put him in his place and to exert some type of domination over him and punish him for committing what is really a petty misdemeanor level crime. Um, so I think that when we talk about it, Rashida has a point. I do think that we have to look at things differently and I would love for some of us to engage in ethical conversations where we talk about what some of the other possibilities are rather than telling her to retire. I want, I want to bring up that, I want to bring up uh, Carryall Horn um, from the Buffalo Police Department. It's, we're in 2021. Based upon what happened to her, now the state of New York is making it mandatory that a police officer prevent another police police officer from harming a citizen. We're in 2021, and they're just now getting around to that kind of legislation. That's disturbing to me. That just shows how antiquated and obsolete much of our policing is. That's, that's exhibit A, right there. <laughs> exhibit A. Well, you know, this is a conversation that we've been having and certainly one that we would continue to have. We will, you know, I'll, you know, Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman Tlaib is a habitual guest on this show. We will uh, invite her back and hear her vantage point. Um, you know, maybe we'll invite the chief. Uh, fresh off the press. Uh, <laughs> I'm on vacation. <laughs> fresh off the press, city council member Raquel Castaneda-Lopez announced that she will not seek another term on Detroit City Council today. This is to the dismay of uh, many progressive circles in the city of Detroit as uh, council member Raquel Castaneda-Lopez was often one of the lone progressive voices on city council alongside council president pro tem Mary Sheffield. Um, she served, uh, I think, two or three terms, Donna, and decided that she would not be seeking term, but uh, endorsed uh, another up-and-coming um, activist out of Southwest Detroit who was running for her seat. And I, you know, the 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 council race in the city of Detroit. It's, it's, it's really heating up. And, you know, uh, we have interviewed uh, some uh, candidates for the District 4 seat. We will continue to interview candidates for District 4. Many folks have inboxed us asking for interviews. We see you, we'll get to you. 
um, and even candidates in District Five. Uh, Donna, what, what do you what do you think the state of these uh, announcements um, and uh, campaigns are leading into uh, the spring summer season? So, can I talk about the gossip that I've um, picked up on the socials? Sure. That, um, as you know, the state senators are term limited. And we have our um, wonderful um, Senator Stephanie Chang is in her second Senate term um, in the state of Michigan and she cannot run again for that seat. And so um, some people say that Raquel Castaneda Lopez is being groomed to take over that seat, which I think would be wonderful. Um, I think that she has been an outstanding person. And then um, she uh, uh, evidently um, recruited somebody to run in her seat. And um, some people are really angry about this. They said, some people are angry about her recruiting someone to yes, endorse yes, someone. Exactly. Does that just happen all the time in politics? Apparently not. <laughs> it's like, you know, first of all, I think it's smart politics. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be doing this forever. I just think it's smart. When you lead, you've got to groom your successor. I'm trying to groom successors so I can actually stop doing what I'm doing at some point in my life. I'm not going to be doing this forever. And I don't have this that long until retirement age. Does it make sense for me to try to figure out who is going to pick up the baton and carry it? They don't necessarily have to do everything I did, but carry that baton because it mattered. I think that's what smart politicians do. And organizations, I'm, succession is something that is. is imagine if it, Mayor Coleman Young had actually groomed a successor <laughs> or two. <laughs> he retired. There's no successors. Everybody's like, yeah, hey, I want to be mayor. I want to be mayor. But there was no successors. There was no pipeline of leaders moving into that role ready to pick up and say, I'm going to be mayor right now. And so you have a great leader and then you fish around and try to find somebody good. And then you get another good leader. And sometimes you get a bad one because you didn't know how to look. And so I think that um, it is actually a way to honor your constituents to say, here is somebody I have vetted that I think makes sense. The person still has to run. And anybody who's running for Raquel Castaneda Lopez's seat is gonna be running against big money, right? Because she has um, led a lot of fights in opposition to a lot of moneyed interest. So um, I don't, I hardly think that it's gonna be a cakewalk for the person that she identifies except that if she is highly respected in her district, a good person will follow. Now we know in district four, um, that's, um, uh, there's a lot of people from a it's lot awesome. of different backgrounds with a yeah. diverse um, pedigree who are um, wanting to run for office. Somebody um, just announced today, Davon today. A young man by the name of Davon Reeder announced his candidacy for the district four seat today. Ken Snap, uh, one, he was the youngest candidate for mayor a few years ago, also announced his candidacy uh, a while ago for that district four seat. It's a hot contest in district four. What now, is your do, do we know everybody who's running? Can you run down all the candidates? I think I know. Patricia Johnson, ML Elric, uh, Bomani Jones, I think is running for district four, Davon Reeder, Tucson Knight, uh, Keith Jones, who is the current- Has uh, he announced? Yeah. Uh, I think so. Or I know he's definitely thinking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, Keith Jones, uh, who's the current chief of staff for Councilman Andre Spivey, 
uh, Letitia Johnson. So those are the folks that I know of right now. If I missed you, our apologies. We This is off the cuff. <laughs> and, um, you know, we would do our best to try to make space for interviews on this show. Here's And here's our other promise. We're going to have a candidate's night. Yeah. District 4, District 5, and um, anybody running for an open seat. Now, I know that Councilman Spivey, I believe Councilman Spivey is running for one of the open seats. I have not heard that. <laughs> you yeah, haven't heard about Keith, and I haven't heard about Spivey. So. Oh, yeah, that's definitely, he's definitely been, um, you know, rumored to be running for an open seat. And um, I believe um, Mary Sheffield is um, running for District 5. I don't know about the two people who are occupying open seats. I don't, I don't know if Brenda Jones is um, running. I, I, I have on good authority, uh, some sources that I can't reveal are saying to me that uh, Janae Ayers will be seeking another term as well. Janae will, but not Brenda. I have not heard any from anybody in Brenda Jones's camp. So it's going to be um, a very interesting race. It's a power grab. I think that some of the questions around the things we've been talking about today are gonna be germane. Also on the ballot in August, we're going to have the Detroiters Bill of Rights and that will outline some changes to the Detroit Police Commission that will hopefully tip the um, balance in favor of more citizen input and control in that none of the commissioners will be mayoral appointees. They will all be elected. Um, so it's gonna be interesting to see what happens over this next year. Um, Brian, how are you guys involved in politics at um, Church of the New Covenant? Let me say about Councilwoman Lopez. Um, I don't really care about the, the politics of it, but as far as she's concerned, I always love the fact that she was a social worker. I, I think that's very important. Um, I think social workers are on the front line. Uh, I think it's one of those kind of professions where you must have empathy um, for other people. And to that extent that she's moving on, maybe she's moving to another office, I don't know. But that is a loss for the city of Detroit that we had a actual social worker in a policymaking position. I think that's great. Um, and we'll miss her. As far as Church of the New Covenant, I want to I want to say this real quick about my brother. Um, he's going to be in town in the next two to three weeks. And Church of the New Covenant, he's, he's been such a wonderful friend to Church of the New Covenant for, for the last 18 years. And so he's agreed to come and sit down with um, my church members. And we're going to do a, a Facebook Live um, meeting. You know, we're going to Q&A with him maybe for an hour, two hours. We're just going to sit up and talk. But he's been a tremendous friend and brother to me and my congregation. And he's led marches with us. Our issue, our number one social issue, I guess all black uh, churches deal with the issue of poverty, right? But one of our issues was, well, our number one issue has been domestic violence. And we've been having symposiums and, and marches. And me as a, a lawyer, most of my uh, trials have been involving domestic violence, right? So if you get a PPO and somebody um, uh, objects to that PPO, 
there's going to be a trial. So most of my, my trial experience as a lawyer has come from defending people, women, um, who are victims of domestic violence. Strangely enough, I, this is my observation, um, there's a disproportionate number of people uh, who are in the police force who, I, I don't have a statistic, I'm saying what I have observed, okay, who, are, who, who commit domestic violence. It's very strange. Um, but anyway, uh, Church of the New Covenant, it's, we're like so many other churches. What I try to do is we've had, we, we've hosted some of the most magnificent, incredible political rallies you will have ever seen in your life. Um, we've had a who's who there. Um, Brenda Lawrence has been a tremendous friend to us. Uh, I said to uh, Tom Perez, when he became the head of the DNC, this is back in 17, I said, Tom, I need you to come to Detroit. Whenever you come to Detroit, you come to the Church of the New Covenant. I said that to him in February. He was at our church in April. Um, and of course, Keith has lent his, his celebrity to our congregation. And so we're out there. Now, here's, here's the, the other side. You have some people, we have it at our church. They say, well, Pastor Ellison, um, what's this got to do with somebody going to heaven? <laughs> so the answer to that question is, the Lord's prayer says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're trying to bring some heaven down on the earth. But covenant, especially during this time of um, uh, the pandemic, um, we're waiting to get out there. We, we want to get back involved. And our, our congregation is one of the stops that we have the politicians come by. They, they feel obligated to come by there. And we have some, some very strong people um, in our congregation who are, who are engaged politically. Uh, what comes to mind right now is Jimmy Heath. That is my main man, Attorney Heath, uh, who was the Inspector General. Now he's the head counsel for Wayne County. And Kamal Marable, Kamal Marable. Um, these guys are political geniuses, in my opinion. And Donna Givens has helped us too. Amen. So, yes, um, it's, not a, it's not a smooth as I might want it to be, but my congregation doesn't prevent me from pursuing my political interests. And we've hosted um, the, the Michigan Democratic Party at least half a dozen times uh, in the last 10 years. So yeah, we're, we're there, we're there. Ryan, I do wanna back up what you just said because I think it's important for us to talk about policing, not just as a danger to the community, but the way that we construct policing as a danger, perhaps the mental health of the people who are um, carrying out policing, right? Yes. And behavioral health. Um, indeed, there is data that police officers um, are 15 times more likely to commit acts of domestic abuse than people in the general population. And I don't necessarily believe that it is bringing in people who are 15 times more likely. I do wanna talk about um, workplace culture as contributing to behavior and certain things getting pushed around. And so I think that when we talk about rethinking public safety, we should also think about the health and well being of a group of people who are more likely to commit suicide, more likely to engage in domestic violence, and to have um, substance abuse problems. Because I don't think that it's healthy for anybody 
And I know that James Craig may want me to um, re resign also having said that, but um, if, if, if I'm important enough for him to, to care about, but I'm not going anywhere either because I think that it's important for us to speak truth to power at moments like these to put a punctuation mark in everything that happened today and say, let's not just let this be one trial where justice or justice did not prevail, but accountability did. But let's look at systems change so that more people in the future do not experience this. Brian, can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, your mom? We pay homage and tribute to your mother uh, on this show uh, a few months ago uh, when she passed away. Can you talk about how your mom influenced you, your career trajectory, and even you know, a family full of justice warriors, all of you are lawyers and one doctor, like how, how, how does that happen? How did that happen? So he, here it is. And Donna can, can uh, she had the same situation. In our home, in the Ellison household, my mother and father, good cop, bad cop, they gave us a script, like a movie script, they gave it to us very early before we were born. They had it all mapped out. And if you followed that script, which what was it? You had to achieve academically and you had to be morally upright. And if you followed it, life was great. If you didn't follow it, you would eventually follow it. So that was our household. And you know, once upon a time, this is no slam on anybody in the uh, law enforcement profession. You know, I was talking when I was 18, I was talking about being a Detroit cop or LA cop. And my dad stopped me in an elevator and said, you're not gonna be a cop in this family. I said, why not? He says, Ellison's are not cops. And we had a slight, we never argued, argued as in raising your voice, but he told me, you're not gonna do it. And uh, then I became a minister, which wasn't much better, but <laughs> he went on and uh, he got with the minister, minister uh, career choice. And then I became a lawyer, but my parents basically said, this is what Ellison's do and you know, get in step. As, as far as my mom is concerned, she was, is my dearest friend. I, I mean, she was everything to me and all of my brothers. She was an intellectual. She was a tough cookie. She advocated for, and she herself was a social worker, by the way. And her influence was, was far reaching. Um, upon her death, there were articles in the New York Times. Wow. And, and cat, the, um, the Catholic Reporter and all the and other other news outlets had to write and say something about her. That's how dynamic she was. But she was my my dearest friend. In fact, Donna, when I was in law school, I went to law school in Louisiana, and I started praying about where I wanted to live. I knew I wasn't going to live in Louisiana, so um, I said, you know what? I want to go back to Michigan and be with my parents as they get older. Best decision I've ever made. I was able to be there with my mom. Um, basically for, for 30 years, three, four days never went by without me seeing her. We traveled uh, to Rome, we traveled to Germany, we traveled to Mexico, we traveled to 
Prague, we've traveled to Croatia, we've traveled to Bosnia Herzegovina together, just the two of us. And um, she was my best friend. And when she died, um, man, part of me died, part of me died. And, and I'm still grieving. Uh, a church member, her, his mother died this evening from Corona. This evening. Uh, she was 93. She got this evening. She got the uh, she got the shot. She got her, a shot last two weeks. ago. she got a shot. Then she got pneumonia and now she's deceased. And the doctor said, yeah, there was something with that shot that that brought her to this place. But anyway, um, I wrote my church member. I said, hey, it's Pastor Ellison. Um, I grieve with you. I know what it's like to lose a mother. I know what it's like to lose your your best friend. And it is gut wrenching, and and thank God for tears. <laughs> thank God for tears. And to anybody who's listening, um, when you lose a loved one that close, um, it's good to have a good support group system network. Have it's good to have a good church community. And you know what? The most valuable thing I have, Donna, Brother Bailey, are photographs, recordings. Um, I just, I love them. If my house burned down, the one thing I'd grab would be the photographs. So, yeah. That's, that's so important. I think, you know, I, I'm always telling folks, um, get your elders on record, get mm -hmm. their pictures on wax, get their pictures, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of that because it's wisdom. Um, and we, and we haven't done a great enough job of getting our storytellers, our elders, our wisdom on record and so i don't i don't know how much time we have but um pardon me go on if this is inappropriate tell me you can cut it out okay but i'm i'm gonna tell you a story take about 30 seconds may i sure. okay so what i'm about to tell you is, is 100 true so real quick um my mom was in the hospital she had a colon surgery and um we couldn't get to the hospital because of corona so on March 25th, I called the hospital, talked to the doctor. I said, how's my mom, doc? Doctor said, your mom is improving. So I went to bed that evening. My mom died on the 26th. This is the 25th, I went to bed. And Donna, let me tell you, I'm not, a, I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to say what I'm about to say, but I found myself, it, it wasn't a dream. It, it just wasn't. I, it was some type of spiritual, uh, experience much deeper than a dream, but I found myself in this black space, pitch black, and I wasn't afraid, not even a little bit. So I'm looking out, I'm just staring out into this black darkness. And my mother, I'm thinking she's alive at this point. When I went to bed, I thought she was, you know, I'll go pick her up Friday. But I, my mother appeared to me in this experience. I'm not going to say dream. It was so much more than that. And she spoke to me, Bailey, Orlando. She said, um, I'll tell you what she said. She said, uh, she said, Brian, I am so tired. And I said to her, but you can't leave like this. And she said to me, you're going to be all right. And at some point, I don't know where that, when that was during that night, but she, my brother called me like at eight o'clock, eight 30 and said that she died and they revised her, revived her. And she actually died at 9.03, but uh, I'll never forget that. I, I do honestly believe that uh, my mother came to visit me as mm -hmm. she was 
transitioning to the to the next plane, to the next realm. So I, I, I thank her for that. I, I just have a few more flowers um, for her. You know, she did not become a social worker early in her life. She became a social worker in her middle age years when her husband, Brian's father suffered yeah. a stroke and she became a social worker and she teased me when I was going back to school in my fifties to get my master's. She says, um, watch out Don, you'll never retire. You'll be like me. And she ended up, um, she was still working in juvenile justice as a social worker. Yeah. The last time I saw her, which was, you know, you know, in, in late 2019, she was still working and getting true. up every day. Um, she was getting a little tired of it, but she never gave up. She never stopped giving. And yeah, to go yeah. over her house every Sunday, Brian would be over there with, after church, he'd go over her house and she'd cook a delicious meal. And sometimes I'd go over there a couple of times. And, you know, the grandchildren were always around. The whole yeah. family, she was the, the center, not just of her son, yeah. but her grandchildren, the center of life. And you had a grandmother like that, Orlando. I know you can relate to that the person who just was the magnet for everybody in the family. And I just remember how special she was to you. So I just want to always um, stand and say that behind um, Keith Ellison, behind Brian Ellison, there and their three brothers, there was this outstanding woman who not only influenced her own, but influenced so many people around her who were blessed to know her like me, like the many young people who she helped. And you know, when you work like that, you stay young at heart. And so she was a lot of fun. You know, she didn't get to be one of these crotchety old people. She was always fun and, 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 and just an enjoyable person. And so today when Keith won that victory, the mm -hmm. same woman who poured into Brian poured into him. And, you know, we've, and, and, you know she's a Detroiter from Louisiana but a Detroiter for many years who poured into our community. So we are just proud. And I can only imagine as a social worker, she would agree that we need to rethink how we do business. It's yes. not enough to just stand here when the balloons and we're done sipping champagne, let's rethink how we do business. Um, we talked about this last week and I um, just want to, you know, just always remember this note that George Floyd's problem did not begin the day he died. That was not his first police encounter. It was his last. It was not his first encounter with injustice. It was his last. People like Clyda Ellison did what they could to help young people, you know, stop it. Orlando, you've poured into so many young people in this community who you know, you have a thousand little brothers and sisters around here who you've helped raise. Like, this is my little sister, like another one, Orlando. And we got to keep doing it. But we also, we're pushing up against systems that keep on doing it. And I, there's the parable about, you know, either you're going to keep on um, pulling, I don't know what it is, out of the water, or you're going to go to the source and stop the, um, what is it? I don't want to say the dead babies out of the water, but something. You know what I'm talking about? Someone help me out. I'm trying. You got two. No, 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 no. Listen, I, I know exactly. I know it. There, there's a, yeah. I know what you're referring to. Okay. 
there's this concept of somebody trying to sing all these dead babies floating through the water and trying to pull them out one by one and mm -hmm. they can't do it fast enough. And then it occurred to them, stop trying to pull the babies out of the water and go to the place they're entering the water to stop them from entering it in the first place. Yes. And we've got to do that with our systems. We've got to stop people like George Floyd for being vulnerable in the first place. I agree. A beautiful person whose life was handicapped and harmed by everything that happened to him because too many of our black brothers and sisters are doing that. And I know even we talk about policing and ending policing, people say, what about all the violence? What about all the crime? It's all coming from the same place of brokenness. And if we ever get to the point of spending our resources to stop the brokenness, to re make reparations for intergenerational racist treatment of black people, we're going to get to a good place. I agree. Amen. A magnificent button to put on this conversation. And it is a conversation that we will certainly continue to have on this show. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Uh, shout outs. I got a quick shout out. Shout out to Next City Magazine, who has partnered with Urban Consulate to launch our brand new series, Urban Consulate Confidential. Uh, you may have seen a trailer on social media these last few days. It's featuring so many amazing Black city builders who are coming on to talk with me, not just about the work, but about themselves and how they find themselves in a time that is so tumultuous, so uncertain, but uh, how they still practice radical truth like Donna was talking about truth to power and finding their joy and how do they get you know the motivation. And so we have a bunch of change makers and city builders from across the United States and even from Canada over the span of the next few weeks where we will be premiering six episodes of the Urban Consulate Confidential. But the premiere and the launch is Wednesday, uh, August, uh, August, April 21st at 1 p.m. Uh, go to nextcity.org to register, spend your lunch hour uh, with me in our new series, Urban Consulate uh, Confidential. So shout out to everyone involved in that, Claire Nelson, the Cochran House, Kevin Ryan at the Ford Foundation, and all of our guests who said yes. Donna, you have any shout outs? Yes, um, shout out to our ECN team. We're preparing for our annual meeting on Thursday. It's going to be great again, our guest speaker. Our keynote speaker is going to be um, Anika Goss from Detroit Future Cities, who is going Love to her. some um, significant information about the state of our community. And I'm going to follow up by talking about um, the state of the East Side and what ECN is doing about it. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I also want to shout out the prosecution team of Jerry Blackwell, who's a corporate attorney who opened the case and gave the um, closing rebuttal. And he worked for free. He wasn't charging $600 an hour. He worked for free. Um, so I want to, um, you know, really appreciate some of his words were certainly quotable. And I think he really put a pen in it. And also Steve Schleicher, I think that's how you pronounce his name, who um, was the primary prosecutor for this case and who gave the closing argument. So um, both of them did an outstanding job under the direction of uh, Mr. Keith Ellison. Um, and I want to shout out Brian, um, my brother, my friend, my pastor, just an all around great guy who um, continues pouring into the community um, and 
you know, has been the support system. You know, to talk about a support system, Keith and Brian have always been very close brothers and it's a, a friendship um, relationship you love to see as well as all of the other Ellisons um, on this momentous day. Um, and I wanna shout out um, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib for never backing down, never being afraid and always being willing to speak truth to power. We need somebody who is going to shake things up. And she did. Amen. Ryan, do you have any shout outs? No, I, I wanna thank you too for just inviting me. I had a good time. Um, it's a great day. Uh, it's gonna be hard to go to sleep tonight. <laughs> But um, Donna knows I love with all my heart. I'm proud of her. I should call her Professor. Professor. And the um, university. It's good to meet you, Dr. Bailey. Amen. <laughs> it's a dynamic show you have here, the platform and everything. And just honestly, thank you and for having me. Thank you. All right. We thank you so much for listening. We want you to catch the wave.